Hello, and welcome back to Laurel Canyon Country, the podcast where we're looking at the history of the country music scene to grow out of Los Angeles, California in the late 1960s that started with The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, Linda Ronstadt, really, even with Michael Nesmith of The Monkees. So today, uh, we're going to take a little look at how the band The Birds got off the ground. At the end of 1963, Chris Hillman was playing mandolin in a prefabricated bluegrass band at a club called Leadbetters. Gene Clark was singing in The New Christie Minstrels, and Jim McGuinn was writing songs at the Brill Building and singing folk tunes in Greenwich Village. When February 9th, 1964 hit, everything changed. With you, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! <laughs> When the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan TV show, it sent a lightning bolt through everyone in the U.S. in one way or another. Teenage boys started to wear their hair longer, sales of electric guitars took off, and for the future members of the Birds, their musical directions changed overnight. Chris Hillman, in particular, was mesmerized by the Beatles. He didn't know how, but he knew this was going to change everything for him. Hillman was a regular audience member at the Monday Hoot Nights at Doug Weston's Troubadour. On one of his regular visits, Hillman saw a folkie with a 12-string acoustic guitar play I Want to Hold Your Hand during his set. Hillman was elated. He had found someone else in the scene who had been bitten by the Beatles bug, too. Unfortunately, by the time Hillman got backstage, the performer was gone. He did, however, learn his name. It was Jim McGuinn. McGuinn, meanwhile, had met another recent L.A. transplant, Gene Clark, who was also smitten by the Beatles' sound. The two would practice Beatle-inspired harmonies around the front room of the Troubadour, a little spot called the Folk Den. The Folk Den was a little storefront that would sell guitar picks and strings, as well as cappuccinos and coffee. McGuinn and Clark would meet up there to play music together. They would sing Beatles tunes, folk standards, and some originals that Gene had been writing. One afternoon, another Troubadour regular heard them and interjected his harmonies into the duo immediately. David Crosby had briefly studied drama at Santa Barbara City College before dropping out to pursue music. After a failed run as a duo in Greenwich Village with Terry Collier, Crosby had moved back to Los Angeles. He had done a stint with Les Baxter's Balladeers and even recorded a record with them. Gene was sold on Crosby immediately, but McGuinn wasn't so sure. He knew Crosby and how difficult Crosby could be to be around. In the end, though, McGuinn couldn't deny the three-part harmonies that the three of them came up with. Plus, it didn't hurt that Crosby had a friend that worked at a recording studio who would let them rehearse after hours. That's where the birds began. Or more to the point, where the jet set began, as they started to call themselves. David Crosby introduced his friend, recording engineer Jim Dixon, to his new band, Dixon thought they were on to something. Jim would have the band rehearse at World Pacific Studios, the recording studio he worked at, after the sessions were done for the day. Dixon was impressed by the group and decided to manage them. He called up his friend Chris Hillman to come hear this new group. So one night after Hillman set at Leadbetters, Chris headed up to World Recorders. Hillman showed up and saw McGuinn, the folky he had caught doing a Beatles number at the Troubadour and he was beyond thrilled. Hearing the three-part harmonies with Gene and Crosby excited him even more. Eventually, the group added a drummer, actually a beatnik bongo player named Michael Clark, 
Crosby and McGuinn had met Clark outside of the Troubadour one afternoon, and since he looked like a cross between Mick Jagger and Brian Jones, they asked if he played drums. He said he had played bongos and congas at some poetry readings, so they invited him to practice. Clark didn't have a drum set, so he would bang on cardboard boxes while the group was trying to get their sound together. While the future birds were struggling to define their sound, they continued to write songs and record after hours with their now manager, Jim Dixon. Dixon arranged for them to record a single, more to give them experience than to take a serious crack at a hit. Although drummer Michael Clark was in the group by this point, only Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby played on the session, and it was filled out by Ray Pullman on bass and Earl Palmer on drums. Please Let Me Love You recalled the early Beatles and Peter and Gordon. The more forceful tune, Don't Be Long, would be redone on the Birds' second album, Turn, 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 as It Won't Be Wrong. Every time I see you smile, come to me. Both tracks were embryonic folk rock at best. Dixon placed the single with Elektra Records, then still a label with little experience in rock or the singles market. Elektra Records head Jack Holtzman renamed the band The Beefeaters on the single to give them more of a British-type image. The single was released without much fanfare or marketing. It flopped on the radio, and the 45 never really sold. A version of the recording would appear on the compilation Pre-Flight, released in 1969 by Together Records. After a few weeks, Chris Hillman got another phone call from Jim Dixon. The Jet Set were trying to go for a Beatles sound with Gene Clark on vocals and guitar, McGuinn on the 12-string guitar, and Crosby on bass. Just one problem. Crosby couldn't figure out how to play bass and sing. Dixon wanted to know if Hillman knew how to play the bass, since he had seen Hillman play mandolin and guitar. Hillman said, sure, I can do that. Hillman, however, had never touched a bass guitar in his life. He went right out and for $50 bought a cheap Japanese-made bass guitar and headed off to the rehearsal. He was concerned the entire time that his mediocre beginner instrument would give him away, but he underestimated just how fledgling his new band was. Michael Clark was still banging on cardboard boxes with one cymbal. McGuinn was playing a 12-string Gibson acoustic guitar with an electric pickup wedged into the sound hole and plugged into an amp. McGuinn was plugged into a cheap Sears and Roebuck guitar amp that hummed constantly, like an out-of-tune kazoo. 
<laughs> Hillman began to feel a little more confident. Even as ragtag as this mostly nameless group was, Hillman knew this was where his future lay. He went home and quit the Greengrass group and gave his notice to Randy Sparks. Sparks laughed at the young Hillman, thinking he was making a foolish mistake. But Hillman and his bandmates were determined. Jim Dixon would spend his time, after working hours at World Pacific, rehearsing the band and helping them find their sound. The band worked hard and recorded and rehearsed every night, but they still hadn't found a name. Finally, on Thanksgiving at Jim Dixon's business partner's house, the topic of naming the band came up. McGuinn suggested the birds. He liked the letter B, as it had served the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and felt like the band's new sound was taking flight. The rest of the band thought they couldn't just use the normal spelling. And wasn't birds the British slang for girls? They didn't want to be known as the girls. So the birds with a Y was settled on. There was still no money coming in for the band, so Chris Hillman, Gene Clark, and Michael Clark roomed together in a one-bedroom apartment off of Melrose Avenue. McGuinn and Crosby stayed at the Padre, a fleabag motel in Hollywood. Dixon would sometimes buy the band cheeseburgers at a restaurant in La Cienega if he had any extra money that week. Seeing the band in dire financial straits, not to mention playing on cardboard boxes, Jim Dixon's business partner, Ed Tickner, reached out to a friend and philanthropist to invest in the band. Naomi Hirschhorn invested $5,000 in the band in exchange for 2% of all future recording income from the birds. Safe to say, her investment paid off. With money in hand, it was time for the birds to pick out some new equipment. Having just seen the Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night, the band walked into a music store and knew exactly what they wanted. McGuinn picked out a 12-string Rickenbacker guitar. He wanted one in fire glow orange like George's, but he had to settle for a natural colored one, as that's all the store had. The band also picked out a Gretsch Chet Atkins Tennessee Rose model like George had played in the film. Michael Clark got a set of Ludwig drums just like Ringo's. Hillman was the only one who didn't follow suit, and he picked up a Fender Precision bass guitar before purchasing a Guild hollow body a few months later. After spending most of the money on new instruments and amplifiers, the group ended up at Mr. Parker's closet and Benson's bootery, where they picked up matching suits with velvet collars and black leather boots with Cuban heels. The birds were ready for their public debut, or so they thought. The birds made their big debut at Doug Weston's Troubadour on Hoot Night. Weston nearly ran them off the stage when he saw the amps, saying, We only do acoustic music here. But Gwen was able to calm Weston down, and he gave the band a shot. The band stumbled their way through the three songs they had. Jim McGuinn and Gene Clark played guitar while Crosby just stood there and sang. While it was more of a disaster and a train wreck than a debut, to say the least, the band took it in stride and made some changes. Crosby would take over the second guitar from Gene Clark, as Crosby was the stronger guitar player. Gene would be relegated to be the vocalist and tambourine player in the group, and occasionally sing lead vocals on his own songs. Crosby would handle the rhythm guitar parts and high harmonies. Gene didn't seem to mind this. He became the dashing, handsome vocal piece for all the girls in the audience. After their rough debut at the Troubadour, the Birds began to write more songs and play some more gigs around L.A., 
a noontime concert at a local college here, an afternoon high school assembly there, gigs at various clubs and teen hangs around L.A., and the buzz soon began to grow. Eventually, the birds landed a one-week residency at Ciro's on the Sunset Strip. The Strip had been the center of L.A. life from the 1930s to the 1950s, but in the mid-1960s it was dying off. Many of the local jazz haunts and supper clubs were struggling, and most of the younger generation were simply staying home and watching television or listening to records instead of going out. Ciro's decided to gamble on this new young rock and roll band. Ciro's was a club that was taking chances. The owner was booking acts like Ike and Tina Turner, Little Richard, and would often have beatnik and hippie dancers on the dance floor. Ciro's was about to become ground zero for the new sound of California folk rock. Dixon worked closely with the band, helping them find their new sound. Dixon had recently been given an acetate of a new Bob Dylan song from his friend and Bob Dylan manager, Albert Grossman. Dixon asked Grossman if Dylan had any songs that he could use for this new band, The Birds, he was producing and managing. The recording Grossman sent featured Bob Dylan with Ramblin' Jack Elliott backing him up and singing along. Ramblin' Jack was kind of out of tune on his harmony parts. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there ain't no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you. Dixon loved the song and felt like it could be a hit for the birds. He first tried to get the Kentucky Colonels to record the tune, as the Colonels had recently picked up electric instruments and added a drummer. Roland and Clarence White passed on the song. Jim then brought the song to the birds. Birds were not enthusiastic. It was a folk tune, and the beat was all wrong. You couldn't dance to it. Plus, there were four verses, and it was a long tune. It would never get played on AM radio. Dixon shook his head. He told the birds they needed to focus on substance over style, make music that would stand the test of time, something the birds could be proud of 40 years later. The birds took that to heart, and McGuinn set about trying to fix Mr. Tambourine Man. McGuinn had been working on learning Pete Seeger's Goofing Off Suite and his banjo arrangement of Johann Sebastian Bach's Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. take that and use it as an introduction and set it to a Beatles drumbeat. His next task was to shorten the song, which McGuinn did by dropping the song to just one verse. McGuinn decided to use just the second verse, Take Me on a Trip Upon Your Magic Swirling Ship. Take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship My senses have been stripped my hands can't feel to grip My toes too numb to step Wait only for my boot heels 
to be wandering I'm ready to go anywhere I am ready for to fade And to my own parade Cast your dance and spell my way I promise to go under it Hey, Mr. Tambourine So McGuinn's new arrangement would be the Bach-inspired intro followed by the chorus, the second verse, back to the chorus, followed by the intro, now played as the outro. It all clocked in under two minutes, a very radio-friendly time for 1965. Dixon decided to have all three of the singing birds try out. Gene Clark, David Crosby, and Jim McGuinn all auditioned to be the lead vocalist on the track. McGuinn decided to approach it by combining the vocal stylings of John Lennon and Bob Dylan. His version won out, and the band recorded a demo of the single. Birds had a name and a single, but no record contract. Jim Dixon began to hit up all of his pals in the music industry, hoping to find the Birds a recording contract. One of the people Dixon played the demo to was Benny Shapiro, who owned the Renaissance Jazz Club on the Sunset Strip. When Benny's teenage daughter heard the track playing from her upstairs room, she bolted downstairs to see who the band was. She thought it might be a new single from the Beatles. Benny was close friends with the great trumpet player Miles Davis. When Miles heard the story of how Benny's daughter reacted to the demo, he put in a call to Columbia Records and encouraged them to sign the birds. That was all it took. Thanks to Miles Davis, who had never heard the band, the birds now had a deal for a single. Even though Columbia had a history of only really working with classical and jazz music, they were looking to get into the rock and roll game. If Columbia liked the single and the Birds had a hit, Columbia would let the Birds record an album. In January of 1965, the Birds arrived at the studio to record their first big single. Columbia didn't want to take any chances on the Birds' first outing, so they hired studio musicians from the famous L.A. Wrecking Crew to record the single and the B-side. Gene Clark's tune called I Knew I'd Want You would be recorded as the B-side to the single. Crosby, Clark, and McGuinn would sing on both tracks, and Roger would play the Rickenbacker 12-string. With the experience of the studio players on the recording session, the songs were recorded in just four or five takes. ¶¶ 
Columbia loved the single. Mr. Tambourine Man was released in April of 1965 and debuted on the Billboard charts in May, and it went to number one in June. The Birds had a record deal. On June 21st, the Birds' debut album was released. While the first single was comprised of backing musicians, the rest of the album featured all the members of the Birds. The album featured the single and the B-side that I mentioned earlier, as well as three other Bob Dylan covers and a cover of a Pete Seeger tune, The Bells of Remney. Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells of Remney. Is there hope for the future? Say the brown bells of Merkel. The Bells of Remney was an old Welsh poem about a mining disaster that Seeger had set to music. Chris Hillman says he still feels to this day that that song was the sound of the birds on the first record, more so than the singles. Along with all of these cover tunes, there were five original songs on the album, either written or co-written by Gene Clark. Gene even took the lead vocal on his song, I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better, later covered by Tom Petty. Gene contributed so many originals that when the royalty checks started rolling in, his checks were significantly bigger than the rest of the bands. The birds continued playing up and down the Sunset Strip, gaining confidence as well as bigger and bigger crowds. They lost the matching suits, which were stolen by Little Richard and his hotshot guitarist Jimi Hendrix, after a gig at Ciro's. Bob Dylan even appeared on stage at Ciro's with the birds, playing harmonica with them on Mr. Tambourine Man. Dylan was so impressed by the birds' arrangement that he was even elated to say, this is great, you can dance to it. The birds recording his song is often credited with one of the things that gave spark to Dylan wanting to go electric. Birds became the it musical group in L.A. fairly quickly. They opened a short tour for the Rolling Stones. Offers began to come in to play private parties for the Hollywood elite. They were all of a sudden rubbing elbows with the likes of Steve McQueen, Henry Fonda, and Lloyd Bridges. While hobnobbing with their newfound fans, one of the connections they made was with Derek Taylor. Taylor had been a press agent for the Beatles and had moved to California in 1965 after severing ties with the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein. Taylor had started a small PR firm and was working with the Beach Boys and now took on the Birds as well. The summer of 1965 saw the Birds break out of Los Angeles. Appearances on national TV shows like Hullabaloo and Shindig and a tour of the Midwest really got the word out to America about this new American folk rock sound. A second single was released on June 14th, a cover of Bob Dylan's All I Really Want to Do, with the Gene Clark song I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better as the B-side track. It would only reach number 40 in the U.S., but it cracked the top five across the pond in the U.K. 
all the success the birds were seeing, a UK tour was booked for them at the beginning of August. Dixon and Tickner thought that the birds were making the jump across the pond too soon. But Derek Taylor insisted, probably because he wanted to take his newfound band back home to show off to Brian Epstein. Hopping a Pan Am flight out of Chicago, bound for London, after their Midwest tour, the birds headed for the UK without even a day off. Derek Taylor on board, bringing his new band back home to England. Birds were greeted by screaming fans and a lawyer. It seems there was a British band called the Birds, with an I that were suing the American birds. Their British counterparts had hired a barrister and were demanding the American band change their name. While the birds, with an eye, and their lawsuit never went anywhere, except for the guitarist of the band, Ronnie Wood, it did drum up some press for the American birds' UK appearances. After a grueling Midwest tour and a transatlantic flight, the birds were exhausted. Derek Taylor called up his pal John Lennon and asked him for some help. Lennon sent over the Beatles' doctors with a bag of purple hearts, uppers that the birds could use to reinvigorate themselves. After a dose of the pills, McGuinn and Crosby took on the British press and their somewhat pointed and hostile questions. At the end of the day, the band, Sands Hillman, who was feeling a bit under the weather, ended up at the Scotch Club, a swinging London hangout. The birds and the Beatles became fast friends that night, thanks in part to Derek Taylor, and Gene Clark was even inspired to write the song Set You Free This Time after meeting his hero, Paul McCartney. The UK tour started on August 3rd with the birds performing on Ready, Steady, Go, the British equivalent of American Bandstand. They lip-synced the two, two Bob Dylan covers, Mr. Tambourine Man, and All I Really Want to Do. tour was fraught with problems. Hillman contracted bronchitis and collapsed at the first show. The borrowed gear was suspect at best. The fact that the English promoter had billed the band as the American Beatles didn't help the situation. In truth, the Birds were still a fledgling band and probably didn't have enough material or experience to mount such an ambitious feat as headlining a tour of England. One of the most memorable disasters of the tour, in Chris Hillman's mind, was a show at the London club, Blaceless. The audience was filled with British pop stars of the time. George and John from the Beatles, Bill Wyman and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Pete Townsend, and future Laurel Canyon transplant, Graham Nash from the Hollies. The stage was so small that the birds couldn't fit the whole band and all of their gear on it. Several members stood on the floor and Hillman even broke a bass string that night. While the shows were generally disastrous, the birds did manage to make some new friends. At a party after the last gig, the birds cemented their relationships with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, exchanging anecdotes and swapping stories of musical life. John Lennon even ordered wimpy burgers for everyone when the party goers got hungry. The birds returned home at the end of August, and there was no rest for these weary boys. Columbia wanted a news single as All I Really Want to Do didn't chart nearly as high as Mr. Tambourine Man. The Birds set about recording a new single and a new album. The second record again saw several Dylan covers, including a cover of The Times They Are Changing, and the title track, Turn, 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 a reworked Pete Seeger tune. To everything, turn, 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 there is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose 
Under heaven. Where the previous album had seen session players on the lead single and the flip side, Second Bird's album features the band playing all the instruments themselves. There was a price to pay for that, however. While Mr. Tambourine Man was recorded in just a handful of takes, it took 77 takes to capture Turn, Turn, Turn. The record also included three Gene Clark originals, with the rest of the band supposedly limiting the number of Gene Clark tunes on the record out of jealousy for his larger royalties. With the success of the first album and his songs on it, Gene had purchased himself a nice sports car with his royalty checks when the rest of the birds didn't have nearly the same amount of income. The record does feature one track that stands out to me and the birds' eventual move into country music. And in fact, Chris Hillman, in several interviews, cites the fact that this song appeared on the second album as proof that the birds were already open to and experimenting with other genres of music besides the folk rock sound that they had created. Hillman had heard a song on the radio that he thought the birds should cover. It was a Porter Wagner hit called Satisfied Mind. How many times have you heard someone say If I had his money I could do things my way Porter had cut the tune as a country waltz but the birds arranged the song in a two-beat style, much like Dylan's original arrangement of Tambourine Man. How many times have you heard someone say if I... While the birds' arrangement wasn't true to country form, this wouldn't be the last time the birds showed their country leanings before Sweetheart of the Rodeo. 1965 ended on a high for the birds. The new single, Turn, 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 would be released October 1st and would go to number one on the Billboard chart by December 4th. B-Side, another Gene Clark composition, She Don't Care About Time, would also garner rave reviews in the music press. Turn, 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 the album was released on December 6th and stayed on the charts for 40 weeks. Finally, the birds were invited to New York City to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show the same place that the Beatles had inspired the birds to go electric less than two years before. At the Sullivan taping, the band was asked to shorten their new single, Turn, 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 to fit the time format of the show. David Crosby was so offended, he lashed out at the show's producer and Ed Sullivan's son-in-law, Bob Presht. Presht, in turn, almost had the band booted and fired from the show. Things got really heated to the point that Dixon... The band's manager had to jump in and smooth things over. He apologized to Sullivan and Depression and got the band back on the show. Depression, however, vowed to make sure that the birds never played Sullivan again, and he kept his word. The cracks in the birds' foundations were starting to show. How many times have you heard someone say? If I had 